Hello and welcome to The Appetite, a podcast brought to you by Opal Food and Body Wisdom, an eating disorder treatment center in Seattle, Washington. The Appetite is all about issues of food, body, sport, and mental health. I'm your host, Carter Umhau, a therapist, artist, and writer. Today on the podcast, we are sticking with the theme of appetites in more of the literal sense today, but not the appetite of food, the appetite for sex and mm-hmm. desire. Yes. So today we have clinical director Kara Bazzi with us. Hello. Hi, Kara. And today we also get the treat of having one of Opal's longtime therapists, Tani Jones, here as well. Hi. Hello. Hi, Tani. Hi. Glad to have you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So I'm Tani Jones. I'm a primary therapist at Opal. And I was drawn to coming in to talk about this topic because it is a topic that I find so valuable in this work we do with eating disorders and really under-discussed, I think. It's not talked about enough. There's not enough room for it, I don't think. I think there's a lot of discomfort around it. So how would you describe the ways in which the appetite for food is related to an appetite for sex? I think that appetite generally requires that you have a connection to body and Within the world of eating disorders, there's so much work done to move away from your body's needs, let alone your body's desires and wants. I think even saying the word desire or want will often bring up a really uncomfortable response from clients. And so I think when you become attuned to what your body's telling you around food, I think that also then brings awareness to other parts of you and other things that bring up excitement and longing, uh, one of those being a longing for sex. I also think the different expression that can be found with food patterns and how that gets translated to sex is also relevant. Of A lot of our clients have more of a restrictive relationship to food, and so that might also then be a restrictive relationship to sexuality. But there also can be the side of the spectrum of more chaos and you know, the binging experience, which also could be resultant from restriction. But there could be more chaotic eating patterns and there could be more chaotic expression of sexuality as mm-hmm. well. But there's still, in both situations, there's a oftentimes a disconnection from kind of authentic self. Mm-hmm. I, I really like that idea, Kara, because it seems to speak to the metaphor that's available in kind of both spaces. And it might not necessarily be a one-for-one one of you're like this with food and you're like that with sex, but the ways in which those two are intertwined, there's always some information, just like you said, Tani, our engagement with our bodies. Tani, I would love to know a little bit about your connection to this topic personally. Yeah, I would say that as vulnerable as it is to talk about, I think I, using myself and my own experiences to talk about this more anecdotally makes a lot of sense so that I'm not kind of creating a universal truth for everybody, but just to be able to speak to the different iterations of my own experience of eating disorder and then how that was connected, I think, to my own sense of my sexuality. I had so many different expressions of eating disorder throughout the decade or so that I struggled with it. But I think in the more rigid and restrictive times, I had very little access to my body at all. Other than to control it, it was a thing to be controlled, and its power felt dangerous. And so then there was a lot of safety, I think, in controlling appetite, size, all of that. And I think that absolutely extended to my sexuality. And 
I would say that in the times of more chaotic eating that Carrie referred to, where I was binging and purging and way more chaotic in my experience of my body, it would be sort of an out-of-control feeling around sexuality, more of like a, a lot more intensity, more risk-taking, more objectification, I think, of myself as a sexual object rather than a subjective sense of myself. And in those periods, I think it was a, a huge spiral of shame and pleasure, like a combination of shame and pleasure. And so there was parts of the more chaotic eating that felt more true to who I was, but then it was like ridden with shame. And so I think neither of those iterations really were authentic or connected or grounded in anything real. And so then as I moved towards recovery, I think it has become much more of a a deep connection to what is pleasurable and what is desirable in myself as a desirer as well as desired being. I'd be curious to hear more about like the maybe some of the specifics and the pathway to moving away from objectifying yourself mm-hmm. and into being more embodied in that in that sense. I think so much of my own recovery journey was about compassion for myself and learning to value myself outside of the ways that I might be valued by others. And that's not perfected in any way, but the self-compassion was a start. But in this kind of growing my self-compassion and doing this work to value and understand myself better around the issue of sexuality, it took me back further before the eating disorder manifested into a lot of the messages I think that I got as a kid around sex and my body and objectification of my body and my sexuality, where I was taught a lot about sex being dangerous and powerful and something that was my job to control and only to be used in very specific ways. And so I think in my therapeutic work in recovery, it also involved going back to those earlier messages around what is my sexuality? Is it a safe thing? Do I owe it to the world to contain it? You know, am I allowed to bring myself fully? Where can I bring myself fully? Revisiting those messages and coming to my own beliefs about, yes, the power of sexuality, but also the beauty and the playfulness and the safety, I think, that could be had in exploring that part of myself and bringing that part of myself to others as well. It's cool to hear some of the language that you use because it's so familiar within the conversations we've already had in the podcast about safety with food and pleasure with food and playfulness and movement and these themes that are, you know, I think probably come up in almost every single episode in Mm -hmm. some way and obviously come up so much in our work with clients as well. It makes me wonder what it's like for you to sit with clients and to maybe notice how their work with food or their work with movement maybe starts leading toward that pathway of a journey around their sexuality as well to maybe understand their story around their body in the same way that maybe you just described your story with your body, Tani. You know, one thing I was just thinking <clears throat> that feels a little bit different maybe from food or from relationship with movement is it's difficult to explore and, and understand ourselves more fully I think with sexuality, when we're partnered, when we have a relationship that we're that we're in, because I know a lot of the work that I did in my relationship with sexuality was after I was married, and 
that that inherently, I think, makes it a little bit more difficult. That was more difficult, at least for me, than it was for relationship with food and movement, because I felt like I could have a more private experience with food and movement. And so to negotiate my own learning about myself in relationship to someone who might have his own, which he did, his own needs and wants and desires, and having to recover from some pleasing behaviors, it's, to me, much more challenging to understand myself better given being partnered. That reminds me of something I said actually on our Hunger and Fullness episode a little Mm -hmm. while back with Julie, where I was talking about um, learning attunement in eating and how I described some of my own experience as being really almost like a hyper focus on what do I want and how do I, you know, how do I want it prepared right now? And am I just a tiny bit hungry or am I really hungry? Just like obsessed Mm -hmm. with all those questions. And like you were saying, the privacy of that it was very freeing to finally be able to take this thing, food, that had been so complicated and work out all the nuances alone and privacy as I decided what I needed. And so, yes, with sex, more often than not, you are trying to figure those things out um, for the sake of relationship as well, for mm-hmm. the sake of being with someone. But that work of doing it alone is something that maybe people don't talk about as much. Right. And when you do talk about it, you get a lot of squirming. But yeah. I, I absolutely agree, Kara, that, again, I don't, I don't think we mentioned this yet, but I do think that this discussion is predominantly about female sexuality mm-hmm. and women in sexuality and people who have been socialized female. But I do think that as women, we are taught overly to attune to the other. And it does make it really hard to connect to your own desire, your own pleasure, your own need. It requires, I think, a lack of Mm self-consciousness early on in the work. And so I absolutely recommend doing that on your own. Mm -hmm. (laughs) When you said lack of self-consciousness, I was also thinking a person that I follow is Esther Perel. I think I've talked to her about her before on the podcast, but she is a sex therapist and she talks about it requires a selfishness. And I think, again, a selfishness is also can be very difficult for a woman to embody because of socialization and kind of the negative connotation that comes with being selfish. But to discover our own pleasure, especially in the context of a relationship, you kind of do have to turn off your awareness of the other person to tap into your own pleasure. And that's that took me a while to figure out how to do, <laughs> and I still struggle with it. Yeah, it's hard. I think it is still easy to lose contact with that mm-hmm. in the moment, which is why I think the more you're able to continue to explore and, and know yourself and keep up with yourself, because I think our bodies change and our desire changes and what turns us on changes. Mm-hmm. And so like with any relationship, there's an ongoing aspect to self-knowledge. So I highly recommend Continued masturbation. <laughs> I'm glad you finally said yeah, that word. I know, the M word, the word that everybody cringes at. But yeah, mm. I think that that is a really important way to mm. explore on an ongoing basis. Backing up from masturbation, I had to start with just like even getting exposure to ideas or thoughts or, I mean, reading books, listening to podcasts. Like I had to develop some scaffolding and comfortability as a first step for me to be able to explore it on my own. This is where I feel like parents are learning more about how to engage their kids around sexuality. But it was such a, at least in my generation, no parents were talking to their kids about it. So I don't fault my parents for not talking to me, but how do we even just start to expose ourselves to 
language around it, talking about get get developing some more comfort around it. That's a really good point. That jumping right into actually masturbation, I think, is a big leap. I was yeah. trying to throw the word out there. I'm glad you uh, did. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but looking at like eroticism and what is erotic for you, mm-hmm. what tells your brain that this is a good time and what tells your body that you can relax and that there's space for that. Mm-hmm. And in terms of the messaging to children, you know, there's no messaging oftentimes. And then I think there's in like like really negative messaging. I, I know I got a book that that, that actively said that it was not okay to mm-hmm. that that was a that was a wrong thing and i think because i had a lot of access to that from pretty early on in my life i was a pretty sexual person so that conflict between being aware of myself in that way and believing that that was wrong was really confusing and shame inducing mm-hmm. that word confusion really stuck out to me because there's so much ambivalence that we might have around our own bodies for so many different reasons whether it is, you know, learning something from a religious context or just knowing that you just don't talk about it and, you know, that speaks volumes or trauma or um, being objectified because you're a person in the world. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just like all of those different things is, can cause such ambivalence about our bodies in general, whether we want to be seen or show off our shape or show off our personality or all these different things where we can say, oh, I, this is so me, but also I need to kind of hide it. And that it goes back to the people pleasing, of course, around how do we make ourselves smaller? How do we respond to our own bodies in a way that is pleasing to others? It, like all of that language is so entrenched in some of the work that people will do around their their weight or their food or accepting their bodies. So accepting yourself as a sexual human being is obviously part of that. One of the questions Esther asks is for us to ask ourselves, how do I turn myself on, not how do you turn me on? Mm -hmm. And that work of how do I turn myself on, again, there's a selfishness that comes back of how do I discover that? for myself rather than the pleasing stance. Again, back to attunement with food, like my mind keeps going back and forth between the two because, you know, yes, maybe masturbation is a leap, but when you're when you're becoming aware of your needs and your desires and your likes, I wonder what how we could talk about the way that someone would develop that kind of taste for themselves, whether it's like actually just an activity that they would do with themselves or actually masturbating. Like that relationship to self, I think, is people don't necessarily know where to start. Mm-hmm. I think a good starting place is even taking it out of the overtly sexual realm. Right. I often encourage clients, you know, like to to take a bath or a lotion or just to engage with their bodies in a sensual way and taking any sort of like ideas of orgasm or specifically sexual pleasure off the table and just starting to be curious And I agree with you with like reading material or movies or, you know, noticing what creates an emotional response Mm -hmm. in you, what opens you up. Would you all have any examples of sort of learning sensuality? Like, Tani, you said kind of lotion could be one with clients or bath, but in terms of welcoming in that kind of more sensual or erotic part of life. We were just talking beforehand um, one of my early ways of connecting that felt more innocuous to that part of me was through singing. Singing is a really embodied activity. Like it requires, um, it's emotional for me. 
but it can also be a really sort of sexual way of connecting, mm-hmm. I think, to myself and to others. But that experience of feeling voice, feeling emotion, feeling the impact of music was a sensual point of connection, I think, mm-hmm. to myself for me. Mm-hmm. Um, was it always an easy thing for you to do? Again, so going back to my childhood, I, I was raised in a Christian home. There's a lot of singing, but it was such a different connection to singing. Like there was no, there was no, there was no connection to self for me in that at that point. It grew into that for me, where I realized it could have a different, like it, it could be a more connected experience. It could be a deeper felt experience of my voice than it had been. So I've always had singing in my life, but it shifted a lot in terms of how I experienced it, I think. I think it was a lot of control initially over how I engaged it and how I presented it. I sort of felt tamped down in my, again, efforts to make sure the sexuality wasn't too powerful, mm-hmm. <laughs> too present. I think dance is another another way for me. Um, dance, like from day one, you know, just going to dances and um, moving to music was another way that I connected. Yeah. I was thinking for sensuality, yeah, dancing has been a big part of my life. And then also just with my body, finding ways that were, yeah, non-sexual touch of just massaging my arms, spending time actually paying attention to putting on lotion, um, lighting candles, using like aromatherapy, listening to music. I think some of that is just becoming present I love massages. I love good smelling things. And that just brings me into my brings me into my body. That feels like the key phrase there. Like mm-hmm. things that actually bring you into your mm-hmm. body. Because whether it's a smell or moving and dancing, taking a bath, whatever it is, it's giving yourself the space to really let down into the pleasure of whatever that activity is going to bring you mm-hmm. and be in the moment and be in your body. It's not necessarily comfortable for plenty of people to be in the moment, right. nevertheless, their their bodies. I feel like that would be my main encouragement to people is to find some place where they can engage pleasure or sensuality that feels like a little bit safe and then see what it feels like to really take that in. Like even from my athletic background, as a high-level athlete, we aren't really encouraged to be in our body, right? We're pushing our body to more of an extreme, especially in competition. And so... I'm saying this now, but it's it's taken a, a lot of effort and intentionality to be present and to focus and to foster that type of relationship that does bring me into my body. That's such a good point because that's just like another example of a space where you need to override. And mm-hmm. then particularly as a woman to override your body, override your impulse, override your need or your preference, and then use your body in order to do something. Right. <laughs> which is not going to translate well for an enjoyable relationship to sex. Right. (laughs) If you're forcing your body into it. Right. I like that you brought in the enjoyable relationship to sex itself because Emily Nagoski is an author that she wrote um, Come As You Are. Oh, I've heard of that. Uh, Yeah. It's it's quirky and delightful, but I think really um, normalizing of a whole variety of ways of showing up sexually. But she always talks about, like, it has to be pleasurable. I mean, it seems like a really obvious statement, but you're not going to seek out or have a desire for something that isn't in, isn't enjoyable mm-hmm. to you. So she talks a lot about this kind of myth of the 
female libido or the feminine libido just kind of taking a downturn and talks about that as being actually the loss of enjoyment of the sex that you are having, <laughs> whether that be with a partner or with yourself or so then how to bring that back in. Um, so the idea would be that actually the female libido is not the problem, that maybe <laughs> the right. sex is the problem, that yeah. particular iteration of sex. Yeah. And not is, to say that people can't have different levels of desire. Right. But this idea that the female libido just sort of is below the male libido in some way is is more related to the female not enjoying the sex right. <laughs> that she's having. Like, I think it's so common for, for women to think that they're broken somehow if they don't have the sex drive or something's going wrong sexually, that there's somehow something's wrong with their libido or they're somehow broken versus just the, the challenge of, of really getting to know oneself. There's a paying attention, I think, that's required there, too, in the details of what's going to feel good or what's turning you on or maybe even outside of the actual bedroom or outside of the actual moment of sex, paying attention to what's happening in a relationship or emotionally for yourself. Or, I mean, if you're not paying attention and you're not present then to the moment of desire, you might really experience some splitting away from yourself, some splitting away from your partner, you're splitting away from any sense of connection. One thing I want to add there is, so this was a really important differentiation for me. I heard, gosh, probably in my early 20s, if you fix the relationship problems and the sex would follow. And it didn't resonate with me, but it was a really kind of damaging message, I would say, in trying to grow in my relationship with my own sexuality. And again, I keep tooting um, Esther Perel's horn, but um, she really points out that the way we love and the way we desire are not one and the same. You can you can love someone really well, but really struggle with desire. And I think for her to differentiate those two just helped lift a veil of shame off of, off of me and helped me become way more curious and hopeful and feel a lot more possibility because then I could explore more of my desire because I did feel like I loved well. <laughs> and I'm like, wait a minute, what's wrong here? So instead of just being shut down and shut down by the shame and paralyzed, I, I felt like that was really what helped open the door for me. Yeah, she differentiates between intimacy and passion and notes that I think for a lot of people, like we're so drawn to making our relationships more and more and more intimate, but that you can't want, you can't want what you have necessarily. You can't long for something that you have. And so that idea of how do you maintain some separateness in order to keep passion while also having intimacy is a is a confusing thing I think in current modern day relationships and in monogamous monogamous long term relationships, relationships. Yeah. she calls it the love lust split love lust split I like mm. that <laughs> mm. so you know, you just mentioned love versus lust and I was thinking about like, sort of the tie-in of, of the over control temperament which I think is something that we sort of touched on at the beginning, but the idea that that people who have more over-controlled temperament tend to be pretty risk-averse, um, tend to kind of avoid novelty. And I think that lust and allowing yourself to experience lust and noticing what turns you on and what's erotic to you and letting a partner know, potentially mm -hmm. those things require, require a lot of risk-taking and require seeking out novelty. And so I think as clients with the more over-controlled temperament or as 
others of us who are not clients with overcontrolled temperament work through some of that, I think, this work of connecting to your own erotic self mm-hmm. becomes a little more possible. And that's where some of the scaffolding, I think, can help too from doing it in relationship to food or with mm-hmm. movement or seeing it maybe if if sexuality feels more threatening than being able to look back and see the ways that they've somebody's approached novelty in other scenarios. Mm-hmm. And I think before even someone might be ready to do the risk work, I feel like having an understanding of your sexual history and sort of the context in which you have understood your sexuality and related to your body feels like groundwork maybe right. to this conversation as well. Tony, you obviously shared some of yours and Kara, you shared some of your story as well. There's like mm-hmm. there's so much detail I think that any of us could gather about ourselves in relationship to all those little nuances of what's going to not just turn us on, but the ways in which we've related to listening to our bodies or not. And so that work, first and foremost, feels like super important. We will include some of the links there that we've been talking about today um, in the description of this episode, so you can find that there. Thank you so much for joining us. If you have any questions or feel like you may be in need of some resources in your relationship to food or body, please find us online at opalfoodandbody.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram to kind of be in touch day to day. Thank you to Jack Straw Cultural Center for sound engineering, to Aaron Davidson for the Appetites original music, and to Hans Anderson for editing. Talk to you soon. <laughs>